If you have a Bible, you can end. Uh, you can open to the end of Matthew chapter twenty. We're going to look at verses seventeen through thirty-four, and the text is there on the next page of the bulletin for you. Uh, so recently, the as you may have seen in the news, the role of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives was vacant uh, for several weeks. For you kids that. Uh, don't understand what that means, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, it, it just means that people were competing for a job. They were competing for one of the most powerful political positions in our country. And that competition uh, took a while. Someone would get nominated, and then they'd go around working hard to try to get the support they needed. So when the vote came, you know, they'd have a certain number of votes. Uh, then the vote would happen, but it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to... Uh, elect a new Speaker of the House, so they'd start that whole process over and do it again and again and again. I don't remember how many times it happened. Four? Somebody? Anyway, whatever. Uh, It happened several times, (laughs) and eventually someone said, in exasperation, if Jesus Christ himself were nominated, he wouldn't get enough votes. (laughs) Nope. Uh, that guy was right. Jesus would not get elected Speaker of the House. The best and most important person who ever lived, the true King of Heaven and Earth, would not get voted into the U.S. government. In fact, the, the U.S. government is just the kind of political body that would have crucified Jesus. Jesus didn't come to climb political ladders to worldly greatness. He didn't run on some platform where he pretended he was going to use political power to fix the world. Jesus came to show us the true greatness of the kingdom of heaven, which is so contrary to the world's idea of greatness that he knew the powers that be in the world were going to kill him for it. In fact, Jesus' peculiar greatness is unrecognizable to us as greatness. Jesus' greatness actually looks like pathetic weakness to those who embrace the world's idea of greatness. We cannot see it for what it is, the true greatness of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the only one who can open our eyes to see his true greatness, the only one who can reveal it to us in a way that would make us want to follow him in greatness like his. We will talk about those things this morning from these paragraphs. Uh, So let me pray first, then we will read the scripture. Father, help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to hear what you want us to hear as we listen to Jesus now. We pray in his name. Amen. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the nations, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, 
in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the nations, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. As usual, we've got several paragraphs here that might seem uh, unrelated at first glance, uh, but that we will hopefully tie together. Uh, On at least three separate occasions, Jesus taught his disciples very clearly and with increasing detail each time about his forthcoming death and resurrection in Jerusalem. So that first paragraph uh, that we read is, is the third time that it's happened in Matthew's gospel. So each time... When Jesus teaches them about his death and resurrection, each time the disciples immediately demonstrated that they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Or that they were in denial about it and just couldn't accept it as reality. This is because the disciples knew Jesus was a great man. He's the uniquely great man. He's the great king of God's people. He's the son of man foretold by the prophets of Israel The son of David, the greater son of David, who would receive an everlasting kingdom from God. The people who followed Jesus, um, really all of them had some sense of his greatness, but they didn't know what to do with this talk of his death and resurrection. They didn't know how to square that with their conceptions of greatness, right? They think that going to Jerusalem, which they're on their way to do now, Going to Jerusalem must surely mean political victory. Social popularity and influence means the preeminence of Jesus. It means everybody's going to know about Jesus and that he is preeminent. But here he is anticipating his death, which, generally speaking, we would consider to be the opposite of greatness. It means weakness. Death means weakness and humiliation and defeat, doesn't it? So as Luke reports this uh, same occasion, this third prediction of his death and resurrection, Luke says it very clearly and repeatedly and emphatically. He says in Luke 18, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them 
and they did not grasp what was said. <laughs> right, so in our passage, that lack of understanding is demonstrated in the second paragraph. The lack of understanding. As the mother of James and John asks Jesus to make her sons great, to elevate them to positions of greatness in his kingdom. <clears throat> her question seems incredibly tone deaf. It's like she's totally blind to the situation. It's like she's blind. Jesus just said that he's going to die in Jerusalem, and she's asking for positions of power and prestige for her sons. I don't know, maybe they all thought that Jesus was exaggerating or being figurative somehow. It's like, wow, when we, when we get there, man, they're just going to kill me. Uh, but I shall rise again, you know. Uh, like someone who survives a smear campaign, who then falls behind in the polls, but who makes the comeback victory late on election night or something. You know? I don't know. Whatever they do think Jesus means, uh, they seem to <clears throat> be latching on to something Jesus has said recently, something that seemed more positive in their minds, the kind of thing that we're actually interested in talking about more. Jesus had told his disciples in chapter 19, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. Right? So his disciples have had that rattling around in their heads for a little while. They've been imagining something like a high council in the halls of power, maybe a circle of 13 thrones made of gold, and Jesus is being the greatest and most prominent in the midst of them. And then the two thrones that are you know, next to him, on his right and on his left, would be the next two highest places of honor and power in his kingdom, the next two places of greatness. They're all dreaming about sitting on these greatest thrones. The other disciples are indignant when they realize they were beaten to the request, right? It's like when one kid calls shotgun to ride in the front seat and everyone else starts whining about how unfair it is because they wanted to sit in the front seat. They wanted shotgun, right? So all the disciples had the same ambition, the same desire for the same vision of greatness. They thought their closeness to Jesus would mean their personal advantage in the world. And all the disciples failed to understand how Jesus' talk about his own death and resurrection should have transformed the way they think about greatness. Jesus says to them, uh, you don't know what you're asking. You just don't know what you're talking about. They're, they're asking for worldly greatness. That is not what his kingdom is about. And they could not be more wrong to think that it is. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am, able, that I am to drink? <clears throat> so as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that's Jesus. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he is going to serve his people. He's going to give himself for them on the cross for love's sake. He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath on their behalf to spare them from it. In his faithfulness to God on our behalf, he's going to drain the cup of eternal death to the last drop. And James and John just said, oh, yeah, we, we can do that. Right? No. Uh, one scholar put it well. He said, their answer is revealed as sheer bravado. They said to him, we're able. We're able. You know, in the garden, when Jesus is praying for that terrible cup to pass from him, James and John aren't able even to stay awake and pray with him. So in one sense, they're being utterly presumptuous to say they're able to drink his cup. They don't know what they're talking about. 
They think they could bear the burden of worldly greatness. Maybe that's what they think they're, they're talking about. <clears throat> it's like when you see, you know, on television, famous people crushed under the burden of their fame and driven to depression and drugs and, you know, crushed under the burden of their fame. And you think, well, I could survive that. I could be famous without it crushing me like that. You know? I mean, even that is arrogant nonsense. And that's not what Jesus is about here. They don't know what they're talking about. In another sense, though, James and John spoke better than they knew because Jesus was planning to share his cup with them. He says, you will drink my cup. Very soon at the Passover feast, he was going to give a cup to his disciples, a cup that represented his his own blood, his own death, and their vicarious participation in that death. It's a cup that they would drink to proclaim that his death counted for them, that his death bought their life, ransomed them from death. Also, uh, you know, when we suffer for his name's sake, we're in some sense drinking his cup and sharing in his sufferings. So in some sense, maybe James and John were right, speaking better than they knew, just not in the sense that they intended, right? So Jesus says... He's able to confirm, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So even when we participate in his sufferings and in his death, uh, it does not earn us closer proximity to Jesus or positions of greatness in his kingdom. God the Father alone bestows true greatness. And the way Jesus, the Son, talks about greatness, he shows us that it's the opposite of a matter of self-centered ambition. True greatness, the way Jesus talks about it, is the opposite of a matter of self-centered ambition. The Son reveals true greatness in his deference to the Father, which we see here. His constant, complete Faithful deference to the Father. He thinks only of the Father, not of himself, not his own personal ambition. He lives for the Father and for us, not for himself, for his own greatness and exaltation. His life of faithful service and self-sacrificial love, that's true greatness. And this is antithetical to the greatness of the world. He continues, you know that the rulers of the nations lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So in this fallen, broken, sinful world, greatness means tyranny in various forms. You know, whether you've got overtly oppressive dictators or benevolent dictators who claim to use their power on our behalf. Worldly greatness means domination through fear and through force. Worldly greatness means me over you and wielding the power of death. So what does the U.S. government do? What does a government of a worldly nation do? The U.S. government with with its enemies and with traitors. What do the rulers of this world do? They kill them with extreme prejudice. All the rulers, all the great ones of this world operate this way. Jesus alone does not. 
What does the Lord Jesus do with his enemies and with traitors? He lays his life down for them. To welcome them in his kingdom, reconciled. To live forever with God. His greatness is radically, fundamentally, scandalously different. So he says, the stuff going on with the world, world rulers, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as his people, he's talking to his church here, our greatness is the greatness of service and self-sacrificial love, because his greatness is that of service and self-sacrificial love. This is not the kind of greatness that makes it to the halls of power or that can be exercised in the halls of power. When the halls of power encounter this kind of greatness, they perceive only a threat to be stamped out. And that's why the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers of the nations conspired together against Jesus to have him crucified. They refused to see and to embrace the true greatness of Jesus. They laughed at the greatness of Jesus as he died. What they saw was only weakness that resulted in his humiliation and his defeat. Even his disciples couldn't see the true greatness in his absolute service and his self-sacrificial love until they came to understand the significance of his death after his resurrection, after his ascension, even after the, the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost. The disciples were confused by his terrible suffering and his death because to them it just looked like a tragic waste and a crushing failure and an end to this campaign to see the kingdom of heaven. But his service and self-sacrificial love, ultimately at the cross, was true greatness, true victory, true heavenly power at work for our good. Jesus is greater than all the great ones of this world even though his greatness meant giving himself into their hands. But it is truly the greatness of the Son of God. He says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He told his disciples many times he was going to a cross. Jesus knew what he had come into the world to do. He was going to place his life in the hands of the powers of death. Those worldly powers would have no power over him unless he allowed it. If he was not willing to suffer and die... He could have brought the world to a crashing halt at any moment. He could have called legions of angels to fight for him. He could have just not come into the world. He could have just not created the world in the first place. The son was always willing to come and serve and love us self-sacrificially from before the foundation of the world. His love is the true power that conquers all other powers, all rulers and authorities, the very powers of fear and death itself. As he died, willing, unafraid, 
For love's sake, he conquered fear. As he rose from the grave to everlasting life, he conquered death. He did these things for us to pay the price for our redemption, that ransom price, to set us free from those powers of fear and death. He has freed us from slavery to worldly greatness. Jesus has freed us to join him in the true greatness of a life of service and self-sacrificial love. In him, in his kingdom, we have something totally different from worldly greatness, something vastly better than worldly greatness. Jesus didn't walk the world's avenues of greatness. Why then would we? It's only if we continue to be blind to his greatness. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. There were two blind men crying out for mercy. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked him, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So here were two blind men. In the world's eyes, these are nothing. They're not great. But even though they were blind, they saw something in Jesus. They recognized Jesus' true greatness. They saw Jesus for who he really was. He's the son of David who would rule over an everlasting kingdom. A resurrection kingdom free from the powers of fear and death forever. They saw Jesus for who he really was. The Lord. They call him Lord. Who is worthy of their prayers for mercy. If Jesus were interested in things like social influence and a popularity contest. Uh, he would have let the crowd carry him away from these blind men who were merely slowing him down on his way to great things, right? But Jesus refused to be hurried along. He welcomed this interruption as a moment that would be good for everyone, a moment that would be good for us. Stopping, Jesus called the blind men and said, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he had asked the mother of James and John. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So if you want to be able to see truly, then you ask Jesus. He has pity on the blind. If you want to be able to see and know and understand the true greatness of Jesus, the only thing you can do is ask him. He has compassion, not condemnation, for the blind. If you want to be free from slavery to worldly greatness, set free to follow Jesus in his life of service and self-sacrificial love, which is true greatness in the kingdom of heaven, there's nothing else for it. You have to ask him. I'll close with a little bit from Psalm 146, our Old Testament reading. Praise Yahweh. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh will reign forever. Praise Yahweh. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, son of man, son of God, Yahweh in the flesh, have mercy on us. In your pity and compassion, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing you. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe.
according to the working of your great might in your death and resurrection on our behalf. Show us the true greatness of your service and self-sacrifice so that we might be set free to follow you in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.